O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature. Please be seated. Friends, this collect for the second Sunday of Easter is one of my absolute favorites. It is a beautiful Anglican prayer, but in this sermon today, I hope that you will see that it is much more than a beautiful prayer and actually something to live by. Listen again to the collect we heard at the beginning of the service. O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity, your son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. I want to unpack this prayer a little bit. I want to give a little bit of the theological and liturgical underpinning of this. And then I'm going to turn to a problem. And that is, as we look at our world, and as we look at human nature around us, we do not see evidence of the dignity of human nature. And I want to look at that disconnect between this picture that the prayer paints and the way we're living our lives. And then ask ourselves, what does this mean and what shall we do? So let's take a look at this prayer. Basically what it does is it encapsulates the entire story of salvation history. It's remarkable. If we believe that the word of God was present at creation and that all things were created through that word, they were created good as we see in Genesis. And so the word was present with God in creation. And we do believe that that word of God was expressed through the prophets, through many, uh, the psalmists, many ways. But as Christians, we celebrate that that word became flesh. That word was incarnate in the person, the very particular person of Jesus. It's an outrageous claim. And Jesus lived on earth. Jesus grew and lived and taught and suffered and ultimately died just like us. In a sense, there was that self-emptying, that movement from God to full humanity. And if that had been the end of the story, it would be remarkable, but it wouldn't be salvation. Because what we know is that God raised Jesus to new life. And there's plenty of ambiguity about what that means. And I don't need to resolve that ambiguity. Suffice it to say, the Christ was raised to new life and exalted at the very side of God. And so do you see that journey from exaltation to humility to exaltation? That's a very important pattern for us to keep in mind as we consider the world that we live in. And the church year basically just matches its calendar to this process, this process of waiting and then becoming, and then the light of Christ shining out, and then the suffering, and then the rising to new life, and then what we call the ordinary time when it starts all over again. There's a cycle, there's a pattern. And as Episcopalians, we treasure that pattern. So if that is true, if what we claim is true, that in the incarnation and the resurrection, humanity was redeemed, humanity was made whole, what on earth is going on? And this is one of the primary critiques of some of our other religious brothers and sisters. 
The claim that Christ has come, that the Messiah has come, they say, I don't think so. Look around. Look at the evil. How could the Christ, who is going to bring peace, possibly have come? And I think it's a fair critique and one that we need to wrestle with. And I'm going to get specific here. I know it's a new year. I know we're supposed to be happy, but I got to talk about some things that are amiss. Because if we can't claim that, if we can't name that, then we can't redeem that. So just a few things as I was thinking about this, and you have your own things, ways that you see humanity broken, not living into its dignity. Murder rates are rising, not only in Dallas, but across America to unprecedented levels. The use of online pornography is growing exponentially, especially during the pandemic. Politics has moved from passionate disagreement about ideas to fundamentally undemocratic behaviors, threats, and even violence. Cybercrime and state-sponsored computer hacks have reached an alarming new level, threatening our country's safety and infrastructure. If you're like me and you look at the world, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to lose hope to say, where is this dignity that this prayer speaks so eloquently about? Listen again. Oh God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity, your son, Jesus Christ. So as I began thinking about this, this salvation that's depicted in the prayer, the fact that as a people, we are not living into God's promises for our life. What does this mean? Is it an all or nothing? Some game? Is it either this or that? I don't think so. I've spent enough time in psychology and in theology to realize that there is a pattern here, a pattern of healing, a pattern of wholeness. Theologians, philosophers, sociologists, psychologists have all tried to explore the question, how do human beings learn and grow and change and evolve? And what we know is it's not a straight line, right? It's not predictable. It's not this than that. There is this looping of kind of an idealized state, a, a perfection, if you will, a descent into disorder where things really and truly are amiss, you can call it sin, you can call it selfishness, and then this exaltation, this rising to a new life which is integrated, which takes that perfection from the beginning and also the complexity of the fall, if you will, and then it's integrated into a new reality which is redeemed by God. And frankly, it's the journey of maturity. It's the journey from immaturity to maturity. If you look at the patterns, and don't take my word for it, but if you look at the various writers, uh, look at the Bible. It talks about creation, fall, and salvation. Richard Rohr, one of my favorite authors, describes the movement from order to disorder to reorder. Paul Ricoeur and Marcus Borg intellectually talk about naivete, critical thinking, and then a second naivete, a post-critical naivete. 
And I want to talk about those phases just a little bit because I think in many ways in our life, we are firmly entrenched in the second stage. But let's start with the first. So that sense of perfection, that sense of simplicity, right? Where, and not everyone has this, not everyone's born into this place of goodness, if you will. Too many are not. But it is customary as a child to be rooted in this expectation that things will go well, that all is right with the world, that things will unfold as they ought. And frankly, that's a childish phase. It's necessary, it's wonderful, but it's a beginning. And then life happens. And you know in your story where those points are. Parents get divorced, a parent loses their job, and there's financial insecurity. A family member dies, whatever it might be, something disrupts that early perfect state and we're uneasy, we're unmoored. And then we move gradually with enough of those into the second stage. And the second stage has hope, but it also has tremendous danger. Because if you think of that second stage of disorder, it's not just theoretically problematic, it's really problematic. It's really a threat to our survival. And unfortunately, there's a couple responses to the second phase of disorder that are inadequate. They're, they happen sometimes, they're temporary, but they're inadequate. And let me explain what the two inadequate responses are to disorder. One is to try to flee back to the earlier stage, right? To, I need to get back to that place of perfection. And so I need to exert more control and I need to control others so that I can restore things the way they were when I was happy and things were simple. It's inadequate because it's regressive. It's going backward. But there's an equally problematic response to disorder, and that is cynicism. That there is no good, there is no truth, there is no order, and so we might as well just go along for the ride and let this fate work itself out because there's nothing good that can come on life on earth. And if you hear me describing these things, friends, you can begin to hear that in our political language, some of our parties. Sometimes a sense of wanting to go back to an early, pure time. And then sometimes almost denialism, that nothing's going to change and it doesn't matter. Those are inadequate response, responses to a serious challenge. So what's another response? And I'm talking, what I'm talking about is not like an hour long. This is a lifetime's work. But another response is to integrate and to move from a sense of disorder to reorder. But we can't do it on our own. Here's the nub. We cannot do this on our own. If you talk about someone who's been in recovery, you have sobriety, you have addiction, and you have recovery. And recovery is a lifelong process. And what do you have to do to be able to get to recovery? You have to hit bottom. You have to recognize that you are powerless and that only a higher power in our sake, in our sense, let's say God, Jesus, can restore us to sanity. So the way we move from a state of disorder into reorder, into a second naivete, a maturity, is that we recognize where we end and God begins. There is a surrender to recognize that this reorder process is going to be a gift from God. That's not something we can engineer. It's not something we can manufacture. But that God is faithful and God will lead us into a state of reorder if we will let God do that. If we will let God move and work in our lives. 
O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity, your son, Jesus Christ. So what then do we do, right? This, this situation we find ourselves in, the things in the world right now that break our hearts, I'm not overstating it. There's a sense in which we are deeply disappointed at life. I think there's a couple responses, but one is to go into a place of prayer, to go into a place of presence with God, to recognize and confess where we are amiss, where we are disordered, where we are broken, not to beat ourselves up, and to let the healing light of the Holy Spirit bring us to reorder, to maturity, to integrity. So in a sense, I'm talking very seriously about trusting the work of the Holy Spirit work in the world, but we'll only perceive that when we stop, when we're still, when we pray, when we open our hands to receive and let God do what we cannot. We cannot change the murder rates on our own. We cannot bring sanity to politics on our own. We cannot stop the threats that face our country alone. We have to do it with each other and with God's help. I want to share with you a poem by John O'Donohue. I know he's a poet that many of you know. Uh, this one goes right to the heart of what I'm trying to say. And so I share this poem with you today. It's called The Inner History of a Day by John O'Donohue. No one knew the name of this day, born quietly from deepest night, it hid its face in light, demanded nothing for itself, opened out to offer each of us a field of brightness that traveled ahead, providing in time ground to hold our footsteps and the light of thought to show the way. The mind of the day draws no attention. It dwells within the silence with elegance to create a space for all our words, drawing us to listen inward and outward we seldom notice how much each day is a holy place where the Eucharist of the ordinary happens, transforming our broken fragments into an eternal continuity that keeps us. Somewhere in us, a dignity presides that is more gracious than the smallness that fuels us with fear and force, a dignity that trusts the form a day takes. So at the end of this day, we give thanks for being betrothed to the unknown and for the secret work through which the mind of the day and wisdom of the soul become one. O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity, your son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.